0: Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of his mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, Allah Glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit now and forever to the Before we begin today, I'd like to tell you a story about a flood. So there was this church in a location where it started raining a lot and the whole thing got flooded and water came in all the way into the church. So after the rain had passed and they, they cleaned up, they noticed that um, everything is squeaking. The doors are squeaking, the pews are squeaking, everything, right? All the wood, the water, and now when it dried, it's all damaged, right? it's all squeaking. So they were going to replace everything. But before they do, they started to notice something strange. People started to come early to the liturgy and they didn't know why. So one day I'm gonna ask like, why I'm not complaining, but why is everybody coming on time and coming early? And everybody was kind of shy to answer, but eventually someone stood and said, it's because every time we walk in the church, everything squeaks. So when we walk in, and if we walk in late, everybody notices and looks. So we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to distract people. So we start coming in early. So if you allow me, I'm going to be that squeaky door, that squeaky pew that you're all sitting on every Sunday. Just a small church earlier, earlier and earlier, till and earlier. we're all here at the beginning of the liturgy. Because it's not just things that for abuna or for the deacons to pray it's for all of us to participate. Our Lord spoke, he he did not speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And he preached and when he spoke with people, it was in Aramaic, a language that was different than Hebrew, more common. And when he spoke, this was the language he spoke. And the Old Testament is mostly written in Hebrew with the exception of about 200 verses, have the book of Daniel and have the book of Ezra, written in Aramaic. But he did read Hebrew, because when they gave him the scroll to read, he read. He read from Isaiah, right? That was all written in Hebrew, and the scroll was written in Hebrew. So he knew how to read Hebrew, but the language was Aramaic. The Old Testament is written both Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. So, unless we... I'm not able to read Old or New Testament in the original languages. That's why I read them in translation. And I'm assuming most people here are in the same situation, right? We all read translations. And reading scripture in the vernacular, in the translation of the people, whatever the people are speaking, is a practice that goes back to even before Christ. So two, three hundred years before the coming of Christ, they translated the... Old Testament from Greek, from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek. And that translation we call the Septuagint or the translation of the 70. This was the translation most of the church fathers used, although some of them knew Hebrew, like Origen, used to read the Hebrew, the original, uh, whatever he could ha- get his hands on. Some were fluent in reading and, uh, and uh, writing as well. But today, mostly we don't read, he, uh, biblical Hebrew or the Koine Greek, the Greek the, uh, of, the old, of the New Testament, we read English translations or Arabic translations. And something important to note about English translations, especially in most translations, this is true for all of them, is that um, there are two problems when it comes to translating anything from one language to another. And we know this very well. Like, for example, jokes don't translate well. Why do jokes don't translate well? Because most of the time, 99% of words do not have a direct equivalent in other language. And the second big problem is idioms. Idioms are these sayings, expressions. How can you translate an expression? When you say, in English, someone kicked the bucket, we mean, passed away, someone died. We try to translate this to another language, like in in Arabic, for example, how can you say, someone kicked the bucket, you can say, someone kicked, and gardal, bucket. But it wouldn't be the same, and it wouldn't work. So you can imagine how difficult of a task it is to translate anything in scripture. So there are generally two approaches that people take in translation. There's something called formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency, big words, you don't need to remember either of them. But the the point is, word for word or thought for thought. So they take, Word for word, they take each word and try to find the best, closest word in the other language they're trying to translate to, and plug in that word, that word went. And the other approach is to try to get the idea behind the, the, the verse, the passage, and to translate that thought for thought. So whatever the idea is, it's translated into the same idea, but in different words in the other language. So a translation like New King James, it's more towards word for word. They try to be as literal as possible, although not so much. And New International Version or the NIV, they're more thought for thought. So you might see the translations translate a bit more loosely. And this is how it is for translations. But even when they try to pick things that are literal, they have a number of choices, a number of options. Which one they choose, is based on what they come up what they're coming in with, their own thoughts, their own beliefs, their own faith. So if we're reading for example the New King James, it's a Protestant translation. So their Protestant theologies informing their choices, their decisions of which words to use. And sometimes literal translations don't translate literally. They translate more figuratively, more thought for thought. And the opposite, NIV sometimes is more than New King James. And then there's a third type of translation where it's paraphrased. They paraphrase. Have you ever paraphrased something? I don't know exactly what it says, but it goes something like, and you paraphrase. There are actual translations that do this, like the contemporary English version. So. John 3.16, in the New King James says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the New King James. NIV, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The paraphrase is very different. Uh, Well... You'll, you'll see. God loved the world, the people of this world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. So those are the types of translations that we're presented with. And which one we choose determines a lot of things because a lot of the time, we, want, we, we base our decision based on Scripture, which is good in... Um, in theory. However, based on the translation we choose, it could be an issue. And that's why when Bible becomes scripture in church. So in addition, um, I'm going to give you one last example. This is from Job 29.4. Job 29.4 in the Hebrew, it says, in my autumn days, uh, one of the most literal translations, the New American Standard uh, Bible, in the prime of my days translates it. Okay? Literally, it's in the days of my autumn. The NIV, in my prime days. The King James translates as in the days of my youth. So if you've read, if you read it in the Hebrew, you might think autumn of my days means it's the fall, it's toward the end of my life, but actually the translation talks about this is in the prime of my days, in the prime of life. So the translations make a huge difference on how we read and how we understand scripture and how we apply scripture. So what does all of this, keeping all of this in mind, we look at today's passage, when we read today's passage, we might think of something like this is a passage about a vineyard, and it's a, basically a garden, and there's a gardener who owns the, the vineyard, and he leased it, and they're not doing a good job, so he wants to send someone to, ta- to, to, to speak with them, they don't listen, so he sends his son. But basically, when you look at it, it's a passage about a garden, right? And you can read it as this, uh, read it in, in a sort of what does this mean to me type reading and say, this one, this passage, could mean something like, I need to work on my own garden. I need to cultivate my own garden. And you can read it something along the lines of Voltaire. You know, Voltaire, 18th century philosopher? His name is actually not Voltaire, his name is Francois, but he wrote one time under the name Voltaire, and it stuck. And he came up with, his motto was, one must cultivate one's own garden. Meaning you have to work on yourself. Cultivate your mind, your body, your soul. You have to work on yourself. And this came in, um, uh, uh, was presented in a story or in a book that became the most famous book in the 18th century. By the way, Voltaire was responsible for uh, one of the biggest problems that we, we hear about today with the New Testament, with the canon of the New Testament. He propagated the idea that basically in the Council of Nicaea, they brought in all the Gospels and they put them on the table. And then they prayed until all the Gospels that were false fell off the table, and only four remained. This is nonsense. This is not how any of it happened, right? This is an old myth that was circulated, and he just kept circulating it. He was very much anti-Christian. And in his writing, he tells a story about a man named Candide. Candide had him and and two uh, friends were traveling the world, and it's a long story. At the end of the story, they end up in Turkey. And in turkey there is a revolt and political issues and the sultan and all that stuff is happening but they on their way to uh, to the palace they meet a man sitting by a, uh, an orchard and it's right by his house so they they say hello to him he invites them in because they're they're travelers and that's his custom so when he invites them in his daughters come in prepare a meal and they even provide beard oil, you know, to, uh, uh, for their beards and, and basically hospitality. And they ask him, the three friends, they ask him, uh, you don't care that there's all these political uh, upheavals happening and all this bad stuff is happening all over the country and you're just sitting here. Uh, and he says to them, He says to them, I have, they say basically you must be a rich man. So he says to them, I only have 20 acres. I and my children cultivate them. And our labor preserves us from three great evils. From wariness, from vice, and from want, or from need. So the three friends on their way home, they reflect deeply on what the old man has said. And he said, this is an honest man. He seems to be in a far better place than kings because he cultivates his own garden. He said that you have to stay away from uh, politics, from uh, centers of power. And by doing this, by focusing on your own life, staying away from all of these cares and worries of the world, focusing on your own things and growing your own garden, essentially working on yourself, you avoid all the problems that people encounter in the world. So Voltaire was trying to argue that we should never tie our personal moods to the condition of the whole nation or people in general. You should work on your own individual. You need to live in your own uh, small pot of plot of land. Don't worry about strangers or about things happening around you. At the same time, because our minds are haunted and prey to anxiety and despair, we need to keep ourselves busy. We need a project. We need just something to do. And it shouldn't be too large or dependent on many. The projects should send us to sleep every night, weary but satisfied. So basically, you have to work. You're an individual, you work on yourself, and don't worry about anything that's happening around you. All the stuff that's happening around you, just stuff that's gonna worry you, it's gonna make you anxious, it's gonna make you upset, it's gonna make your life worse. Now, we can read the passage of today's gospel this way What does it mean to me today? But notice that the passage is not about me. The passage, the way is presented, if we just read that, we might think that, where do I fit in all of this? Am I part of the garden? How do I improve my situation? And so on. But Christ is answering a very important question that he was asked at the beginning of the chapter. The, the Pharisees came to him and asked him, by what authority are you doing all of this? So the question is, is a question of the authority of God. The authority of Christ, by what authority is doing all this? So he answers their question with a question. He says, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing all of this if you tell me by what authority John the Baptist is baptizing. Because this question was a trap for them as well. If they admit that John the Baptist is baptizing by the authority of God, which they have to, otherwise the people will revolt against them because people held John the Baptist in high esteem. Then Christ would say to them, then you should listen to John because he witnessed of me. And if they reject John's authority as being sent from God, the people will revolt because the people hold them in high esteem. So they were in a dilemma. They didn't know what to answer. So they were silent. So he follows up the question with this parable. So this whole parable, when we read it in its proper context, we see it's about the authority of Christ. By what authority are you doing all of this? And when we look back and we see, how did the church read this? How did Christians who come before us read this this parable? They read it exactly in this way. St. Cyril of Alexandria reads it in exactly this way. St. Ambrose of Milan, St. Ephraim the Syrian. They read it this way simply because this is how the church read it. This is not something to say that this is something I can take and see how I can apply it to my own life and improve my situation. This is telling us something very important, very critical about where Christ fits in all of this. The Father is the vine dresser and he is the vine. Where do we fit? If he's the vine, what are we? We are the branches. And we read this in the third hour, in the gospel, every liturgy. In the third hour, we read, I am the vine, John 15. You are the branches. And St. Paul picks up on this. And when he's speaking to the Gentiles in Rome, he says, they are the original uh, uh, tree. You are grafted. You are a wild olive tree that's been grafted on the original tree. They were cut off from the original tree because of their disobedience. But if they obey... If they come back, God will graft them back in. And when he talks about this in Romans chapter 11, he says, you know, sometimes you look at vines outside of the vineyard and you say these vines are happy and healthy and free. No one is pruning them. No one is cutting off branches. They are free to do whatever they want. And they're thriving. But the vines inside the vineyard, they're constantly being pruned and limited and uh, allowed to grow in only certain ways. And when things aren't going well, there are remedies that are often often painful. So the vines inside the vineyard, look at the vines outside the vineyard and say, we're jealous, we wanna be outside the vineyard. But he's saying here in Romans chapter 11 that those wild vineyards, they have no one to care for them. They will grow and grow and grow as much as they can. It's almost like he's talking about consumer culture. They're going to grow as much as they can. They're going to gather as much as they... They're going to eat as many of the nutrients, as much as they can. But because there's no vine dresser, they're always going to be limited. They're always going to be wild. They're never going to be transformed into something that brings forth fruit. They're always going to be out for animals who come in and eat the, the fruits whenever they come up or if it's too hot, the sun is gonna burn them, or if it's too much rain, they're gonna get flooded. They're just liable to all of this stuff happening. But inside the vineyard, there is the vine dresser. So as the chief priests and the scribes, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, they feared. Once they heard this parable, they feared, because they knew he is talking about them. Here, Christ is talking about his authority In the church, sometimes we think that Christ's authority is only when it comes to Christians, but we don't think of God as the universal God that has authority over everyone. And we ought to really look at things this way: that He is the the God of the whole world, the vines that are inside the vineyards and the vines who are outside. And those who were supposed to be caretakers of the vineyard were afraid when they heard Him say. This parable. So they watched him and they sent spies because they couldn't address him directly. And because they, they couldn't address him, they're trying to catch a word. They're trying to catch him say something wrong. But of course, they're not going to be able to do that. And as we see, what they resort to is they try to get false witnesses to try to say something against him. And in the end, it was Christ's own words where he said that he is God. He equates himself with God that they call this blasphemy because they couldn't accept the fact that their authority stems from the authority of God. They took this as a personal attack on themselves, not as a responsibility given to them by God. So when we read this parable, we can read it in a way that's completely individualistic, just looking at me and my situation and how this fits in my world. We can read the whole Bible this way, in fact, but what we end up with is a Bible conform to our own image. A Bible that's just there to get bits and pieces that can help us grow in the way we want to grow. Rather, the Bible is there to help us conform to it, to shape us like a lump of clay. When St. Paul talks about the, the potter and the clay, this is what the Bible is doing. The Bible is there to shape us. The people's response to the parable, not just the, 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 uh, the Pharisees, but even the disciples. The disciples, when they heard that this is uh, an, uh, something that is talking about the, the, the cross and Christ going to the cross, even the disciples say to Jesus, let this not happen. Let it not happen. He's not coming in thinking that somehow I can manage the situation. But if I have to, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to try to manage the situation, talk with these high priests, maybe cut a deal, talk with them. something. He came knowing that his path is the path of the cross. And that's why every word he said was a step closer to the cross. And when the disciples understood this, they said, let this not happen. Is there any other way? Is there any other way we can avoid the path of the cross? And by doing, this, by doing this, they missed the point that it's not about trying to avoid the path of the cross. It's every step that we take is a step toward the cross. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver, to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And that's the problem with these high priests. They were not the type to compromise with. They did not want to share authority, for example. Judas thought that if I can manipulate them, somehow cut a deal, that somehow we can come to some sort of understanding where everybody wins. But by doing this, not only did he lose uh, his share with the disciples, but he gained a share with these high priests. They, he gained the share as being part of the people who betrayed Christ. He is the stone which the builders rejected. They rejected him, but he became the one to unite both Gentiles and Jews. He became the cornerstone to bring them both together in the vineyard. That vineyard became the church. And the church, inside the church, this is where we find the work of the vine dresser, the work of the father. And this is where we find the vine. Some of the fathers say that we know where God is, we don't know where God isn't. It's not limited that God cannot work outside of the vineyard, but we know that He is working inside the vineyard. So, this is where we have our lives, this is where we have our beings, this is where we have our whole way of living inside the vineyard. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart and we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.